This is the London FinTech Podcast, brought to you by your host, Mike Ballaman, bridging the worlds of suits and t-shirts, of finance and technology, bringing you insights, stories, and inspiration from the golden age of opportunity and innovation happening in London right now. Hi, this is guest interviewer Dan Kiernan, and this is London FinTech Podcast, episode 149, brought to you in association with Smart Pension, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Mike Ballerman to discuss his recently released book, The Real Politic of the Unlisted Company Board, Making Your Board an Engine of Growth. Company boards are a mysterious and remote thing for most of us. Only a tiny percentage of any company serves on the topmost legal board. If you are in a megaco, they will generally be so remote as to be irrelevant. And even in a small company, you may know little of what they do other than matters such as signing off on fundraising, certain large expenditures, etc. And if you're in a startup, you might not even have a board yet, but you probably have some sense that you should get one at some stage, even if you're not really sure what it's for. You will have read about the obsession of recent decades of corporate governance and think that boards are just paper pushing. However, no matter how inexperienced and naive all founders sooner or later find out that it is the board that governs the company, not the founder. For some time, the founder might have voting control on the board, but as bigger and bigger raises come and go, the founder's control slips away and sometimes, as we have seen, the board sacks the founder from their own creation. Recent prominent examples that spring to mind are Travis Kalanick at Uber and Elon Musk at Tesla, both seemingly all-powerful celebrity founder owners who had their wings clipped by the board. Further back, even the mighty Steve Jobs was fired from Apple before he came back and revived the company over a decade later. Mike interviewed some 80 small company boarders, mostly founders but also angels, non-executive directors, VCs, chairmen, capital providers and others surrounding to find out what life is really like on an unlisted board and what the role of a board can be. The real politic word is in the title as all these conversations were anonymous which means that they were very realistic and Mike can share such quotes as the founder, apparently a well-known founder, who said, my board meetings are shit. This is the real politic of the board. Life doesn't always work out right, does it? What had this founder done wrong? What could he do now? If you are a founder, or a would-be founder, what does the map of the terrain look like? Mike, I hear, went into this exercise feeling sure that on a good day a board might help, and on a bad day it might be a pain. But after all of these conversations, he's come out with a completely evangelist view for the need to build a great board. And if one does this, it can multiply the company's chance of success hugely. Equally, Mike heard plenty of examples where it was neglected or done badly, in which cases it's just another pain in the founder's diary. Plenty to talk about, so let's get on with the show. Okay, Mike, how are you doing this morning? I'm very well, thank you, Dan. It's a very great pleasure to be a, a guest on the show, which, um, as a, a long-term listener like you and the other long-term listeners will know, means that, as a guest, I just sort of sit here and listen to your pearls of wisdom and <laughs> occasionally try to say something different and get told I'm wrong. It must feel quite unusual being, being the guest rather than the interviewer. 
But, well, actually, I think this sort of, it feels like I can be lazy. Oh, really? Okay. Well, you see, well, it's up to you, Dan, to produce a great show, you know. Yeah. I'm the raw materials. I mean, I'm courgettes and a bit of chicken from Waitrose, and you've got to make the meal out of it. Okay, well, we'll, um, we'll put this to the test then and see how hard we can make you work. <laughs> That's cheating. <laughs> I know that your format, you usually start with a little bit of chit-chat before you get into the main body of the content, so... Well, you've been around a while. You always make the point on your show, actually, that you've got over 30 years of experience in, in the city. So uh, what differences have you seen between your, when you first started out in life and now? So the, the being around a while bit is, um, is, is a euphemism for uh, <laughs> you're an old sod. Well, I think just starting with sort of having been around a, a bit in this thing which we call, for want of a better word, the world for quite a while. There's a saying that the past is a foreign country, they do things differently there. But actually, as you get older, I think Douglas Adams said something along these lines, that as you get older, the past becomes your home. The past is what makes sense and is, is sensible. And the modern stuff starts to be very mad. And uh, a specific example actually relates to, to, to LinkedIn and a thread last week. Hmm. And to, to business, I shall give, but just to sort of back up to that, uh, my younger daughter's now in a last term of university, she's got finals in a few months. Having done English literature, she's going to do a, a master's to run up even more debts because obviously <laughs> we think it's literature, you know, you're bound to make loads of money in the future. In the modern world, we saw her last week and I was talking to her about the fact that it occurred to me when I was going up, when I haven't been to the same university as her, that this autumn it'll be 40 years since I went up to university. And to put that into context, so we're, we're talking in 2020, to put that into context, when I started university 40 years before I started university was 1940. We hadn't even started to fight back against the Nazis. Wow. So, you know, this is what I mean about so much changes. I mean, when I was a kid uh, in the 60s, um, I made these little airfix planes. It was a big thing. Then I had sort of spitfires hanging from the ceiling and yep. chasing Messerschmitts and all that kind of stuff. And then I, you know, just driving up here. Uh, it occurred to me another sort of thing when I was young, in the 60s, this would have been as a sort of quite small kid. I was walking around, I think, with my grandmother, and there was a sort of strange-looking guy on a bench. Mm. And, you know, kids can intuit quite a lot. And uh, I must have said something, what's that like? And, and uh, she said, oh, he's got shell-shock. Right. You know, this is somebody from the First World War, still thinking about shell-shocked from, from the First World War. So, uh, joking apart, the past is very different, and everything changes. Some things change for the better, and some things change for the worst. But... I think the, and again, going back to getting old, you realise just the importance of telling your stories and a simple factual thing about what it was like in the past. Going back to the LinkedIn thread, there was a thread of people saying, oh, the Brexit negotiations are going terribly and it's all awful and, you know, it's going to be a disaster and how dare we, th you know, blah, 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 blah. Uh, you know, all that kind of stuff. We've seen, we've seen tons of it for years. Anyway, the, one of the participants uh, I actually sort of worked with and sat next to in a gig before, and I'd seen a lot of his posts which were actually sort of just very negative recently, yeah. that kind of stuff. So I just sort of said something along the lines of, yeah, maybe, maybe not, but there's not a lot of point just moaning about politics because... Name me a decade, name me a century when you couldn't have said the politics is crap and you're yeah. crap and it's you know, better to be creative and all that kind of stuff. And in particular, that you have ten fingers and ten toes, but you only have one attention. And as we all know in the digital world, one of the main extraction industries is mining your attention mm. and selling it to somebody else. And in this particular case, newspapers have always been about promoting fear and greed yep. to make you come back tomorrow. And so you're just being played here. You know, some newspaper has said, oh, Boris, this thing is terrible. And, you know, 
depending on what you thought about Brexit or the politics or whether you like Boris or Tories or, or blah, blah, blah. It doesn't really matter. The newspapers will make sure that everyone comes away fearful. Yes. If you're just, all you're doing is channeling fear, then you're not going to do anything creative in the world. Yeah. You know, better to be light at candle, blah, blah. Anyway, so I was making that, that point. And I said, and sometimes you sort of write stuff and you go, oh, that's, that's true, actually. It doesn't happen very often in my case. I said, well, the reason newspapers do that is it makes them more money. Yeah. If a better business model was they make people happy by reading the newspapers. They make it feel like a joint society where we're all in it together. There is no division. And that made them more money. They would do that. Yeah. But sadly for us all, that isn't the business model. And I remembered, apropos the 60s and 70s, and I remembered that there was a business model called that, which is pop music. Ah, so okay. the 60s, so pretty much 1965 to 1974, you look at the early 60s and the Beatles, it looks like the 50s. They're wearing suits and ties, they've yeah. got sort of short hair, the suits and ties are different, but you know, that's all. So the 60s were pretty much 65 and 74. And every day on the radio, there was some jolly song about love yeah. or peace or all that kind of stuff. And I, I was a kid, you know, so I was still about sort of, well, I was 10 in 1972. But you see on the TV sort of hippie girls getting the kit off and all that kind of I mean, yeah. it's all wonderful. But it was literally the feeling was of peace and love. Yeah. And one of the things that I find is very distressing is that for young people today, it's no longer about peace and love. It's so much about hatred and division and sectarianism and retribalization and all that kind of stuff. So, yes, so just simply put, in my usual long-winded fashion... I think I was extremely fortunate to grow up at a time when the vibe was peace and love and people were making money from pumping peace and love yeah. into the thing. And we all listened to the radio in those days because there, were, there weren't millions of podcasts we had to search and all that kind of stuff. And there's pros and cons of that, of course. But everybody was in the peace and love thing. It wasn't say it's wonderful. You know, the, the working classes in particular in the 70s had a terrible time. Yeah. Steel making, shipbuilding, coal industry stuff that had been going on for a long time was destroyed. So it wasn't all wonderful by any means. But the general vibe was peace and love. And it's not that. So how have you gone from a a happy child of the 60s in this this peace and love world to a career in financial services and then ending up as a podcaster? Well, I think obviously podcasting is about spreading peace and love. (laughs) (laughs) But the mission of the London FinTech podcast, and it's rather like the book, which we must mention at some point, is educate and entertain. Yeah. So to the extent that there is some element of entertain which generally has to be on independent media. People are just being people. People are being more human in the hippie way. The whole hippie thing was about, hang on, being so straight-laced and wearing suits and ties is a bit restrictive. Let's just be more human. So that part of it I maintain, not taking things too seriously Mm. and trying to put in some context. So that bit is there. Just in terms of the, the career process, again, it was an extremely different world. The population was far lower and university degrees were far less frequent. I saw something recently, I think, I don't know, half of young people get degrees these yeah. days. I can't remember what the stat is, but I think I saw a 10% for in the past. I don't know when it was, yeah. but it was that kind of thing. So a, a degree was, was quite a, a, a rare thing. There was, after the 70s, which had been terrible, as we all know, from oil prices and inflation and unemployment and all that kind of stuff, there was you know, quite a few jobs going around. So I literally, when I was at university, I didn't do anything about it. I went along with a mate to see the IBM careers fab thing. And I thought, there's no way I want to go to IBM. <laughs> Fine company, but it was just like, a, you know, a mega factory. Yeah. So uh, I just left university, didn't think about getting a job, went home, got a bit bored about being back under your mum's feet for a couple of months. Yeah. She probably got a bit bored of doing my washing, thought, oh, I'll get a job. I applied for a couple of jobs in, in software, and I didn't know what happened to the first one. It was Plessy. I didn't like them. They're a bit big co. And it was a startup in Bath, and I joined as number 12 Yeah. Uh, in 83. 
And when I left 18 months later, it was 55 people. So it was a really informative experience and really about just delivering results and getting the answers. So in the early days, I was on the compiler team and one evening I was actually doing something relatively important um, that she needed doing for the project. And I remember the, you know, two of the managing directors did the washing up in the kitchen. <laughs> we, were, we were in a corridor of Bath University. Yeah. You know, so that's how it starts, which, is every, you know, which comes back to my, to my world there. And although it was only 18 months, it was a very seminal thing because, as listeners obviously know, in the last six years I've been entirely involved with the startup world. So then, just very briefly, why did I leave that? Well, I've always done the wrong things in my life. So then I was young, I had hair... Uh, and I was interesting, and, and there wasn't much going on in Bath. Yeah. Now, as you say, I'm sort of highly experienced or whatever <laughs> phrase you use, been around a bit and boring and middle-aged. I should be living in Bath because there are lots of nice country pubs and it's just a bit more mellow than, uh, than London, but I've also yeah. got it wrong. But very briefly, at the time, some of the most important changes in the world and also in your life are unanticipatable. So I did do computer sciences. I moved into a computer company. Nobody really had the slightest idea about connecting computers too much. You could yeah. connect them over telephone lines and it's a pain in the ass. But, but why would you do it? Computers were for com- computing things. Yeah. People thought we'd have flying cars by the end of the century and that the oil would have run out and you know, we'd have had a nuclear war. That was all very likely, but nobody even conceived of computers yeah. chatting to each other, let alone being in your pocket. So in those days, it was a bit like doing the crossword. And you know, after a while... After a few years doing it, I could do the crossword. You know, I came in tomorrow, the computer was the same as it was yesterday, yeah. and I could do the programs, and that's fine, and I could carry on, no problem. But that didn't seem a particular challenge, and I think the thing that... And at the time, I'd deliberately been avoiding the kind of... The usual thing, you know, you sort of go from school to, to Oxbridge to merchant banking or something like that. Oh, I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to do, you know, just get on the main path. But what attracted me to the city in particular was that the world was different every day. Yeah. Every day, and it still is, every day you wake up and read the newspaper and the world has changed, so you need to be very responsive to a, a changing world. Ironically, of course, if you're in tech now, the tech's changing all the time. Yeah. So you don't have that motivation. So I left and joined Climots in um, 85. Better to be lucky than good. And I was running Global Fixed Income in, in 88 to 92, and quite lucky and got good performance. And uh, in 92, I'd actually was getting a bit bored of finance by then, low boredom threshold back in the day. And so uh, I'd got a, actually got a place on a CPE conversion course, which would have led me to become a, a barrister. Wow. I thought, oh, I know, this, I know how this finance stuff works. I know, I know how markets work. I'll go and become a barrister, professional talker. Yeah. Um, but you'd get paid a little bit more than podcasting. So maybe, maybe I should have done it. And then funnily enough, actually, two things happened. Firstly, that speaking to various contacts at the ends of court and having lunch at one of them, which was very, very pleasant... It seemed to me, and this is a long time before any kind of current thinking whatsoever, which is that increasingly it would be about taking laws from Europe. So you'd be a bit like just in a, a ah, district. You'd be, okay. you know, you'd be like in Newbury, Crown Court. That's yeah, fine, nothing against Newbury, but, but you're not at the centre. Yeah. Whereas historically, the ends of the court in London were at the centre of the English law system for a thousand years. So that slightly put me off. But more practically, Jonathan Agnew, then Chief Executive of Climate, what, so we've, we've got this problem and you know, there's two different divisions want a chunk of our very finite capital and they both give us reasons why yeah and nobody quite knows whether what, what what's which is more risky and all that so i went and started this sort of project on that a large part of which turned out to be how do you measure the risk in it treasury versus equities versus yeah. corporate finance which became uh, the role which is i believe the first head of risk in the city 92 to 98 which was a, a fascinating period of time and we got taken over by just the bank in 95 and the first year was the, was the phony war, talking about 1940. Nothing happened. And then the year after, the likes of David Clementi, uh, who was the then CEO, but 
um, other CEOs came and went. Now we're doing a fantastic job of governing the BBC, uh, and the sooner that's reformed the better. Left and the people one level below the chief executive, like myself, were told, oh, it's these people, they used to be the senior management, the middle management cluttering us up, you know, it's fine. But in year three, it became clear that this was true. But only if you'd got a German passport. I went home, checked whether well, I got a German passport. There was good news, there was bad news. Good news, I had a British passport. Yeah. The bad news was, as it was a British passport, nothing was going to go anywhere. So I then left, and in 98, I went back to the future. I started my own startup, Penates, selling strategic management software system. Uh, and consultancy, which went very well. I mean, I was the only full-time employee. In those days, there wasn't really capital available and all that kind of stuff. People said, well, maybe we should go to New York because they have capital over there. So again, how much changes? You know, this is just yeah. the end of the last century. And the dot-com stuff was just going and changing the environment and all that kind of thing. But anyway, I still you know, made over a million in three years, which was which was enough yeah. to pay the rent. And I had an arrangement to sell to one of the leading management consultancies for, for quite a nice price. But then we hit the early 2000s recession in the city and everything died and they died and they sacked 25% of the partners and all that kind of stuff. Right. So then I did, a bit, I did a bunch of turnaround projects for banks and, and all this kind of stuff. I mentioned before, worked for, with Lens Banky for a while and worked with them when they went bust, which was interesting, quotes, unquotes. And after too long doing gigs for big banks, turning around projects, the commonality became apparent, which is that the problems in the projects were the problems in the banks and how the banks were managed and how the banks were run and the yeah. mentality. And, yeah. and actually, in the, in the mega banks, Quite a lot of uh, Second World War sort of centralist control. You know, the centre tells everybody how to do it yeah. and we reduces everybody just to sort of, you know, privates who are supposed to do as they're told. Got fed up with that and uh, I did an interim marketing gig for a small co, which went quite well. And, and that led then, in, and they didn't know they were a fintech, it's about 2013 or something. And then in 2014, you know, people have been saying, oh, what about fintech, Mike? Shouldn't you get into that with your big co and small co background? Yeah. So I woke up at four o'clock one morning, thought, I know what, I'll do a... I'll do a podcast. Yeah. Being older, thank you. Uh, but not a lot wiser. I didn't know that if you think of something at four o'clock in the morning, the best thing to do is turn over and go to sleep and forget about it. So it seemed to be a good idea. So I did it and, and 149 episodes we're, we're here today. So Yeah, so it's been an interesting journey then with a mixture of big co and small co and success and failure all in there. Yes, the, you know, the, the, the winds blow one way and the winds blow another. And I think one of the themes from this is that you never know what's going to come. Yeah. You get up and do your best every day based on what you know. But sometimes a wind comes from a different direction. Yeah. But for Climb Watts having a problem of capital allocation, maybe I would have become a barrister or something like that, you know. Yeah. But for going to that party, maybe you wouldn't meet that girl or boy or something. There's a fate or chance plays a lot in it. And coming on to the book, that was something I could never predict whatsoever. It was just that one lend it. I was just mooching around and uh, chatting to people and uh, I was chatting to them about becoming a, a Ned on the basis that, you know, one day I'll retire. You can't do a podcast like this for sort of 20 years because it will just get boring and the market will get boring. Mm-hmm. Some interesting things happen for a while. It's great to be involved in the scene and meet the people who are doing it and then, it, you know, it moves on. And it was a simple thing, which is that I spoke to lots of people. I got the usual thing, which is they all sort of saw me differently depending on what context they knew me. Oh, yeah, you're a risk guy, Mike. Or, oh, you're a fund manager guy, Mike. Or you're a strategic guy, Mike. Or, yeah. you know, oh, you're a media guy. Yeah, whatever. All these are sort of true, but I'm used to that. But the fascinating thing was, I thought, it's not just me. They all have a completely different concept, implicit concept, of what the board's for. Yeah. So this was kind of... That's the, odd. This is the germ of the idea that... That's just, it's curiosity, you know? Yeah. And going back to the, the LinkedIn post, and it's very relevant, the point I was making to my sort of chum there, was that if you're in a state of fear, it's contraction, it's yeah. anxiety about the future, and that kind of stuff, 
that is a mode which will completely inhibit creativity. Yeah. And the best way to reboot creativity is to be curious. Yes. Why is it a bit shit then? Yeah. Why is Boris negotiating? At least then you can find out stuff and maybe write a book on why Boris should have done it differently. But you create something in the world that wasn't there before. So so it was this. It was curiosity, and curiosity, I think, leads to creativity as long as you're not in a state of contraction. So I just pinged a dozen of the top founders who I respect in London one day. Forgot about it, you know, long lines that these people are so bloody busy that if I'd pinged these 12 people, sorry, I forgot, I owe you 50 quid, I must give it to you. Yeah. They would have come back to me, but it'd probably taken them two or three weeks, not because they didn't want the 50 quid, but because they're so bloody busy. Yes, of course. They all came back within 36 hours. So that tells you something. Yeah, I'd kind of forgotten about it. I sent this out, you know, yeah. you, you sort of, you, you cast, cast your rod on the, on the water and go off and yeah. put a brew on or something. And I thought, wow, gosh. Tells you that there's something there, something that yeah. people are concerned about. You stumbled about. across by accident, you know, no yeah. skill whatsoever. It's just that the muse taps you on the shoulder. So I spoke to them, long telephone calls, and the first thing that came out of that, which is highly relevant to the board point, was that the conversations were quite emotive and almost emotional, which is not what I expected. No, it's often in business we're not emotional, we try and keep a straight face. Well, this is, yes, this is the whole idea of professionalism yeah. and all this kind of stuff and turning yourself into a neoliberal robot and all that and you know from in, from an indie media perspective one of the things that indie media does is reject it i mean all the, all the youtubes i watch or podcasts i listen to they're all different human beings they're all yeah. sort of crazy and wonderful you know in different ways but the real politic this is where the real politic comes in kind of what life is really like yeah and it was more like doing a therapy for these people and they'd obviously have emotions they bottled up Huge stresses they bottled up and they all came pouring out and it was a bit gruelling really. And the archetypal story which I wrote in the book is that, you know, you're doing a raise. Mm-hmm. There's no founder that's done a bunch of raises who hasn't thought, oh shit, we're fucked, we're, we're going to die. We're doomed. Yeah. We're going to die. So you wake up at four o'clock in the morning, cold sweat or tossing and turning or don't sleep the whole night. I think, oh God, it's a disaster. I've got to go in and sack all those people and, you know. So and so, his wife's just had a baby, and yeah. she's just moved from Liverpool down. You know, so all this stuff goes through your mind, and you have to turn up in the morning. Hey, gang, how's it going? Great. Yeah. You know, we're going forwards. So you have to live a lie. Yes. And that's one of the things you have to live a Incredibly lie. Incredibly stressful. As a leader. Yeah. As a leader, you have to lead. Doesn't mean you lie through your teeth about everything. Nobody's going to follow you. Yeah. But and again, going back to this LinkedIn thread this kind of sort of trolling a bit and ping-ponging backwards and said, oh, well, hasn't great art been produced by suffering from Van Gogh? Well, yes, great art has. But I can just say empirically, having spent six years with founders, I haven't come across one successful founder who I describe as negative. Yeah. Put that to one side. I mean, cares about positive. I am going to create this business today. This is what we're doing. And I've got these challenges and I'm taking it on and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So the, emo- the emotional stuff of it. And then I pinged another 12 people and got the same response. Within 36 hours, they all came back. And they all had the same emotion. And the, pre- and the predominant thread was the, was the same thing. You know, I'm uncorking a bottle of pop that's been sort of shaken quite a lot. Yeah. And two things came out of that. A second of which I stopped asking that question because <laughs> I'm not joking. It was grueling, you know. Yeah. And people are, t- and, and, you know, I make a joke of it and I, I put it in a generic abstract fashion. But the reality is not abstract. The reality is human suffering. Yeah. You know, the reality is someone drinking far too much eating far too much, their relationships yeah. are going shit because they're crabby and, you know, all sorts of problems are created around somebody suffering like that. So, joking apart, I didn't want to dive too much into the motions. But interestingly, since the book came out a week ago, Tuesday, as it comes out, one or two people came to me and said, oh, have you got a flow chart? Have you got, you know, have you got logical things to do? You know, well, okay, I'm going to write some, no, no, some more clickbaity articles, like six yeah. things to do to make your board awesome tomorrow. Yeah. 
But the people who've come to me and said, well, surely you could just turn this into a logical flow chart or system of recommendations. The first chapter of the book is the eight essential aspects of small company boards, and I just point them to essence seven, cauldrons of emotion, power, betrayal, plotting and deceit. Yeah. The most important thing to understand about boards is that, not all the time, but you stay on a board for long enough, it will become about emotions. Yeah. It will become about fear and greed and power and lust and envy and conflict. You know, so the heart of it is that, without getting into complicated stuff like law and all that kind of thing, the board is just a meeting of human beings in the same room who've got different desires for life, yeah. want to see different outcomes, and like a bunch of people in one area, once you turn the temperature up and pressure up. We've got this frontal cortex, which has been added on to a billion years of evolution, yeah. but the frontal cortex is on top of everything else, and it goes back to the more basal metabolism as it were. Yeah. Maybe people have got this idea that a board is some sort of legal configuration or box-ticking exercise, but you asked a couple of questions and it becomes apparent it's it's a very emotional thing, a very stressful thing, something that people really care about and sometimes have real problems with. So what then turned that discovery into the decision to write a book? Well, just picking the first point, which is that I found it was something else. I used the analogy of a coin. Hmm. There are two sides to the coin. There is the legal side to the coin. Okay. If you don't follow the law, you will end up in a chain gang. That won't help your business, because when you're chained to other people, digging rocks in the hot sun, that isn't really going to help. So you must absolutely follow the law. But, and this is where infinite number of articles go wrong online, and obviously written by lawyers, funnily enough, just following the law, which isn't that tough, which is, look, have a meeting, make, take some minutes. Yeah. Don't trade when you're bust. I'm simplifying, but that's the essence of it. Funnily enough, following the law has got nothing to do with creativity, nothing to do with creating a business, creating a culture, creating a society, creating a product, creating a market, creating products. The other side of the coin is that. So it's not an either-or. It is a both, but there has been a complete dearth, I think, really, of anything which is, as it were, is emotionally honest. Um, Nobody pointed me to a book like this one and so you know in terms of what gave me the motivation to do it well actually I was just very fascinated by the topic yeah because people who have been demonstrably successful in fintech have gone about it a whole bunch of different ways right yeah it's very very simple which is you want to make a nutritious meal yeah right you are six of your mates well someone might be doing a Thai curry yeah some might do fish and chips very nutritious (laughs) traditional English food So there are many ways to do that. Many paths up the mountain, as I call it. Yeah. What another story, once you get to be a big co, you've got to follow a bunch of status rules. It yeah. becomes a dot to dot different story. So I just got fascinated by how people did the boards, what it really amounted to. And then, of course, once I spoke to more and more people, say got to 80 in the end, you find out that the reality, it's a bit like, I mean, in a way, relationships is a very important metaphor. It's a bit like you're going to speak to 80 people who you respect in life. Yeah. And for some bizarre reason, they're all really open and honest with you about their relationships. Yeah. And you go away and think, how can I not write about a book about this? Because I see all the suffering here. Yeah. I can see some stuff that's really good to do. You know, remember your girlfriend slash boyfriend's birthday or something, you know. Yeah. <laughs> some simple stuff like that, and, as well as more nuanced stuff. So it almost becomes impossible. You get carried away by the tide at that point. And going back to the big picture of the boards, I wrote a short article on LinkedIn recently just to try writing a LinkedIn article, and I got about 18 views, so obviously <laughs> writing a LinkedIn article is even worse than writing posts. But one of the things in terms of how I can summarise the book is that by the end of the process, one thing struck me 
profoundly, which is that serial entrepreneurs approach the board radically differently from a first-timer. Okay. Right. Okay. Why? Well, just taking the relationship thing. You know, the first girlfriend, boyfriend you had at one, 30, 40, 60, whatever, you went about that relationship in one way. Yeah. A few decades later, having had more one relationship, you know a little bit more. Yeah. <laughs> you know what to do and what not to do. And the principal difference here is that first-time founders generally approach the board in a similar way. A first-time founder is bloody busy doing everything. Yeah. You say, oh, I'll forget side business school tomorrow. I'm going to go off and do my own thing. Yeah. On day one, you're doing everything. Yeah. Everything. You're pulled in a million directions. It's a long time before you get a CMO under you who you trust is doing the marketing. Yeah. You get a product guy. You get a CEO. You've got to take a long time to build that infrastructure. You've got to raise money, all this stuff. So a founder is a, has to be a jack-of-all-trades for quite some time until he's got enough money to recruit people who can do everything better for him. Yeah. One of the things that you have to have is a legal board. Well, look, I'm a company, you know, and I have a legal board meeting, and the accountant sends me something, and I sign it, and that, that's it. So, yeah. But that's just a sort of um, a paper thing. So they will have a board like that. If there's two founders, they may get together. Yeah. If they raise friends and family, maybe one of their friends and family comes to the, the meeting or something like that. But it may happen once a quarter. Yeah. So one of the things is that Founders are amateur board attendees, mm. amateur boarders. One of the fascinating things, which is ironic about the book being released, is ironically, this was written for founders. Right. Predominantly for founders, because I want them to suffer less, I want them to be more successful, I want them to create better businesses, and the whole of society benefits that. When I say it's for founders, that means it's also for everybody else on the board, because a small co, the founder, is the company. Yeah. It is a long time you start your new thing tomorrow before anybody can sack you because the thing dies. Yeah. A new company is like a small f- fire. You know, you need tinder, you've got to keep blowing it. It's creative, it's your vision. Yeah. It's all about your vision. So you can't sack the founder for quite a long time in a company, going back to the, the ones who have eventually gone. Eventually you can. So even if you're a, an angel or a Ned or a chairman, you must understand the founder-centric view of the world because it's the founder who's been supported for quite a while. Yes. Once it's a bit grown up, it becomes a bit more like any other company. You can sack anybody in the company. Anyway, so the, the idea is it's for founders, but who's bought the book most? Every VC right. that yeah. I know has bought it straight away. Senior Neds, by which I mean 60-something, 70-something. Yeah. Ironically, the book has been bought by those who know most. Yes, of course. And not those who know little. Yeah. Because you don't know what you don't know. This is precisely it. And going back to me leaving in 1998, I did a bit of consultancy to fund the creation of my product. And at the time, I was the first set of risk in the city. There were many banks that weren't doing risk. And I thought, oh, this is a piece of cake. There's tons of banks that don't know what they're doing. I'll turn up and I know nothing. That'd yeah. be wonderful. And there were one or two, I think, actually, I quite respect them. They're doing a good job there. And I found at the time, perversely, precisely to your point, that the ones that knew nothing didn't hire me. Yeah. Because they don't know what they don't know and they don't know how important it is. The ones that knew quite a bit, they hired me. Going back to VCs, VCs are professional board goers. Yep. Yep. Your portfolio Ned in his 60s or something is a professional board goer. All they do is go to board meetings. They will go to several a week maybe yep. in extremis. They are really professional at that. And like all good professionals, they pursue marginal gains. Yes. You know? If you know 90% of what you can know and you think, I'll buy this book and I'll learn 1% or 2% more, that's yep. a hell of a lot. Yeah. If you don't know, you don't know. And the thing that the founder doesn't know, and many of the people I've spoken to didn't really know enough, which took them some time to get to, which is that, yes, you have to do it for legal reasons. Yes, there needs to be some control. Once you raise tons of money, even from your friends or family, or once you raise millions, 
There needs to be somebody that's going to check the bloody spreadsheet of your, your cash flow adds up and your yeah. bank statements doesn't say overdrawn yeah. and you aren't spending it all on sweeties or wasting it, of course. So there has to be an element of corporate control. But the one thing that serial entrepreneurs know that uh, many first-time founders do not know is that done well, like everything in life, it's not always done well. Done well, the board can be, as the sum title says, the board can be an engine of growth. Serial founders, by and large, prioritise the board relatively early. They view it in a positive fashion. They know, and they want somebody to come in and and check the check the bloody numbers add up and the bank account isn't overdrawn, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Uh, and they want somebody to challenge them. Yeah. They want someone who they respect to say, yeah, Dan, great business, mate, but do you really want to be expanding into Bolivia as your first overseas venture? Yeah. To be challenged, to, to, you know, it's a bit like playing chess. You've come up with some new opening. You want to play with someone else to find out whether it's got a flaw in it course, or something. Yeah. So they want all that kind of controlly and challenge stuff. But what they know and what the average founder does not know the first time around is how important it can be to make your business grow. And a simple example of that is that you start your new business tomorrow, there are a bunch of people in the world, even if your business is completely unique, I don't believe anything is completely unique, you see the word innovation all over the place. I saw something the other day, I think something to do with what Bridget was doing in her space, and I said, oh God, not innovation, please. <laughs> you know, I said, I've been surrounded by it, and, and how much of what I've seen is truly innovative? Yeah. Well, Zopa was in 2005, creating peer-to-peer, yeah. but that was, game was based on something else. You know, so innovation is massively overhyped, of, um, of course. Anyway, even if it's completely innovative, there are people that are never going to work for you, yeah. who've got decades more experience, tons of contacts, know a hell of a lot about sales, know a lot about industrializing a business and turning it from craft into a mini factory or, or, or whatever. Yeah. All sorts of stuff who know a lot about boards, who created a company out of nothing and floated it and became worth a billion. There was a hell of a lot of people out there. They're never going to work for you, Dan. No. But, but, because of this funny thing called a board, you give them a relatively small amount of money. Founders say, oh my God, that's a lot of money. It's nothing to these people. I mean, you know, the, the stat I saw was that an average Ned on a, on a medium-sized tech growth board would get 25 grand per annum. Yeah. So that's a lot to you if it's coming out of your pocket. There's nothing to them. Yeah. They don't care about 25 grand. These are very successful people. You get a quarter percent of the equity. Most of the time, that's worth nothing. Yeah. So anyway, there are people, however, Dan, who will come into your business once a quarter or even once a month, depending on how much frequency is, and they, if you've chosen them right, will do their level best to help you, mentor you, help your business and promote your business. That's what the serial founders know. Okay. That's why they would never dream about not taking it seriously. And that's why they understand that it can be an engine of growth. Okay. So, let me summarise what I think I've learned so far. <laughs> In no more than six words. <laughs> you've, through conversations with people, when you're just exploring the idea of being a, a Ned yourself you sort of open this can of worms and found out that people are really emotive about this, it's very stressful for them, it's an issue that can cause a lot of problems. And so that turned into the motivation to create something, to create this book, which is really written with founders in mind, but actually it's proving to be useful for people of all kinds and all shapes and sizes who are associated with boards, whether they're NEDs or VCs or the founders themselves. And in fact, maybe not enough founders have come across this book yet. So maybe that's one appeal we should make to the listeners. If you know a founder or if you are a founder, then you should take a look at this book because it's going to have some important lessons. The biggest lesson is that the board should be a positive thing that's an engine of growth. And it's not just some legal obligation or some chore that you have to comply with. 
And that's something that you've learned by carrying out this research and the, the serial entrepreneurs, they know that the board is really, really crucial. Absolutely. And you mentioned in the introduction the idea that I've turned evangelical about this. I absolutely have. I mean, I have a, a gospel to spread. Yeah. Which I believe is a very important gospel, and I believe it is the truth. And unlike the gospel saying Jesus is the Son of God, it may or may not be, you can't prove that. But I've spoken to a bunch of people. I mean, going back to this book being unique in its tone, one of the interviewees has been on small K boards for over 50 years. Right. He has written a book about being an angel investor. Right. He said, Go on, that's a good idea. <laughs> he said, no, there is no, there is no book about the board like that. Yeah. It's seen from different perspectives. So, yes, that's a super important lesson. If people take away one thing from this podcast only, which, as you say, they can tell other founders, which is, yes, it can be an engine of growth. Now, when you say that, it can be a bit sort of motherhood in an apple pie. People say, oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. So I can say to you, relationships can be wonderful, Dan. You go, yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah. And maybe your relationship, oh, I hope your relationship is very good or something <laughs> like that. But how do you know how good anything can be in life? Yeah. And just talking a little bit about the, the structure of the book. I mean, firstly, it was based on 80 conversations with UK founders, uh, board members, etc., etc. So a, a question arises, which is how much is it relevant to the UK and how much is it relevant to Bolivia or yeah. anywhere else? There are two aspects to that. The first is it's completely relevant to UK yeah. small co's. And by UK small co's, I mean small co's that are actually raising money and trying to go somewhere. I mean, I am a small co. Bridget is a small co. Yeah. You don't need that to just do your, do your thing. But if you've raised external capital, if you've got ambitions to go somewhere, then you should check it out. In terms of people overseas, I've already been contacted by some people from America. One chap works for very successful, incredibly successful, and he's bought a copy for, for, this, for this guy. <laughs> Why is that the case? Well, practice does vary from country to country, of course. Yeah. So, you know, in the old days, 10 years ago, you used to say that if you've got a small fire in America, they chuck petrol on it yeah. to see whether they make a big one. <laughs> yeah. In the UK, if you've got a small fire, they'll chuck cold water on it yeah. to see whether it's strong enough to survive. That's changing because likes of Revolut now raise a trillion dollars because the world is globalised and it's yeah. not so different. However, one of the other things I was told, which is that in America, they take the board less seriously until it's floated because they're just going on doing it. But there again, someone, a headhunter who's involved in this market was only saying me, the other day that actually in America they have advisory boards which they focus on much more. So, yeah. you know, cultural practice will change. However, going back to power, betrayal, plotting, deceit, yeah. lust, desires, conflicting objectives, that applies in every society throughout history in all walks of life of which business is just, just one. I mean, you mentioned these people who've lost their jobs. Rene lost his CEO ship from Lending Club that he'd yeah. founded in America. So, yes, it can be very helpful elsewhere. In terms of the structure of book, I found a similar thing that I do I did when I did the podcast, which is I lots of podcasts and people email me and say, oh, I don't like the intro music or I don't like this or I don't like that. <laughs> oh dear, I'm very sorry about that. Never mind. And I was always, always very happy being a Marmite because I thought, thought it was important to be Marmite. It must be something that people can dislike, yeah. which means that some people can love it rather than lift music. None of those people ever listen to podcasts or even listen to it going forwards. Anyway, the, the one or two sort of irritating sort of mosquitoes on this sort of replied to me, people I know, which makes it more irritating, saying, oh, oh no, we want an audio book. <laughs> people always want something different but I mean a podcast one of these sort of annoying people said to me oh well I want a transcript I'm not going to listen to podcasts well don't yeah. listen to it I'm not going to need transcript of but I actually came up with a, a good answer basically piss off but it's a sort of politer version going back to how emotions really rule things yeah. which was that a couple of chapters here on the context how companies governed in, in the past for the past 500 years could be read as a narrative yeah. but 
And this is the relevance to, to really busy founders because one of the problems is they don't know, but the other problem is they're generally very busy at any, any stage. They don't have time to sit down and read a few hundred pages. Is that the reason that this is not meant to be turned into an audio book? I need to at some point finish off the history of the company in the next year or the year after, which will be a narrative and, and then readable is that this is a bit like a car manual. Yeah. I had lunch with someone last week. The first chapter he read was chapter six on the chairman, right. chapter seven on the NEDs. Yeah. There's a chapter on the board. There's a chapter on capital providers. There's a chapter on the CEO co-founder. It's meant to be, in a way, readable from cover to cover, which it definitely is. Yeah. Or it's meant to be a manual you pull on your desk. Yeah. And you think, oh, this chairman isn't going well. You pick it out, pick it out three, three years' time and reread it, and you'll probably get some stuff from the, the chapter that you wouldn't have got in the first place. Yeah. And to all the founders, there's one I'm really leaning on because they should read it for a bunch of reasons. And they go, oh, I'm busy, and all this I'll read in the summer, which means I'll never read it. <laughs> um, anyway, I'll get over that problem, which is the final chapter is chapter nine, fixing broken boards. Yeah. Every founder should read chapter nine, not because their board is broken today, yeah. but going back to relationships, we all know the, the worst thing you can do about relationships is be complacent. Oh, relationships, fine, there'll be no problem. No, it's best to know where the shoals and the reefs are out there and the sandbanks, you know. So you think, oh, I'm getting a bit near near the rocks at the moment. I'd better steer steer away. So, yes, so the structure of the book is covering all the various areas and it can be read both cover to cover or just dipped into, and the the person I was speaking to is looking at doing some chairman rule, so just dipped into the, the chairman rule. So it's a number like that. The challenge is, of course, spreading the word about its existence. Yes, of course. So who should really be reading this book then, Mike? Um, you say it's a bit of a, a toolkit or a bit of a, a how-to manual. Um, who's going to find it most useful? That's an interesting question. I mean, going back to business, I've always differentiated between product, push and demand, pull. Yep. And in any business, universities or anything, you want to be in demand, pull. I want this. I've got a headache. Can yep. you help me with my headache? That's very easy to, yeah. Yeah. as opposed to I've got this tonic. If you take this tonic every day for a year, you, you will find you get less headaches. Yeah. It's much harder to sell the product push. So from one perspective, I have, as I mentioned in the epilogue, uh, been down a rabbit hole for two and a half years, and I've got a whole bunch of ideas about my creation. Yeah. Well, Metternich, the Austrian general, said no battle plan survives first contact with the enemy. Yeah. The market isn't the enemy, but that's my concept, and that's a little bit irrelevant, really. It's a question of who buys it. So I've already been surprised that VCs are... Lap it up. Yeah. Senior nodes lap it up. The other category I've seen is potential nodes. Mm-hmm. Oh, I think I want to be a node one day. Yeah. How does it really work? Read the book. Vice versa. In terms of people in the audience, if you're interested in how companies are governed, we haven't had time to talk about it. But I did speak to somebody, an important person in an important business school the other day who said this stuff is not really very well known. Yeah. Cadbury, for example, who changed corporate governance completely for big co's, got it completely wrong in 1992 about how companies were governed in the past when they were governed very, very well and far better than they are today. Yeah. Um, big companies. So if you're really interested in governance per se, you can buy this book, you will get unique content, you'll find out why Cadbury was wrong or the whole of corporate governance has got it wrong and you will read a third of it and you don't need to read the other chapters. Otherwise, I think, as you say, it's a, it's a kind of recipe book. I was speaking when I started to somebody who was writing two books at the time, he's written other books, and he was talking about the challenge in the modern world of do you write an old-fashioned book that's got a few chapters which are quite long? Yeah. Or do you write a sort of you know, a blog-posted book where every, everything has got an attention span of sort of 15 milliseconds yeah. and you can read one at a time? I've done both. So there's nine chapters, but each chapter's got about a dozen subsections in. So you can read it as a chapter or you can read it as subsections. And I think that I will summarise by not answering your question. I will summarise just by describing a little bit more what I've done and listeners can then decide whether it's relevant to them or to any of their chums. What I've done is I've taken 80 rambling, stressful, distressing (laughs) 
insightful, interesting, yeah. everything, human conversations done over quite a long period of time, and I condensed those as it were into a 2D map. Yeah. There's mountains here, there's a swamp there, there's a river here, there's a bridge there. If you need a map, this is the most honest map you can get yeah. that covers all the aspects of that territory. If you're at all involved in it, then having a map is really useful, even if you know a lot, which is why the VCs have bought it. You mentioned before about those who don't know, don't know, but those who, those who really know, know that they don't know yeah. everything. Yeah? Yeah. The total man years, not meant sexistly, experience of people on boards runs into the thousands here. You could, for some miraculous reason, at the age of 18, start being a, on a board and spend your whole life on a board and other boards. You will not get a fraction of the experience that's been condensed into this yep. 2D map. So if, as it were, an ordnance survey map of the territory, an honest account of the territory, with paths through the territory, how you avoid all these challenges, how you avoid the difficulties, how you optimise, if that's the thing for you, go and check it out. Yeah, and I would add, I think it's pretty much the only map to this territory, certainly the only map that doesn't just focus on the legalese, but includes all the relationships and all the pitfalls that you might face forming your board. Yes, I think it's the only one that covers both sides. That, that well, it's not fair. I, I don't really refer to the legals. I say get a lawyer, which you should have a, yeah. a lawyer. But the only one which covers it's an emotional honesty. I think there are maybe one or two in the states, possibly West Coast, which looks at it from a venture capitally perspective. Yeah, and that's perfectly fine. But this is, as I say, this is the warts and all from the founder's perspective, and having spoken to lots of people, just like relationships. I mean, you know, if this book had been about relationships, Mike spoke to eighty people, all very honest conversations, and this is what he heard. Yeah, fantastic. Okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap up in a moment and then ask you, Mike, just for a couple of takeaways before I um, chip in with a few of my key takeaways. So before we finish the show, I'd like to thank all you listeners out there and the brand partner for the podcast, Smart Pension, who are fast, secure and free. Check out their UK workplace pensions at autoenrolment.co.uk. And then, Mike, I know it's, it's a long book. Um, it's only 300 pages, <laughs> he says defensively. I said that to Paul Tucker. That's a very long book, so no, it's not. It's only 450 pages. It's actually, one second, now, now you've mentioned it. Let's check. Let's check, yes, exactly. Right. In fact, you don't have to read the uh, epilogue, which is me uh, waffling on. It is 272 pages. It's, it's a short book, <laughs> coming in at under 300 pages, but it's, it's not clickbait. It's not just a series of blog posts. I know you're, you're not a fan of going down that clickbait route, but I'm going to ask you to do it now. What would be two or three key takeaways from the book? Well, I think I've banged on about this point, the core point, which is the, in, in, the, in the subtitle, making your board an engine of growth. Yeah. Like all wisdom, you can go, oh, yeah, I know that, but you don't necessarily embody it. Somebody was speaking to me last week, asking about challenges about their board. Very experienced person. But the challenge ended up being that the board isn't really an engine of growth. Yeah. So you start a conversation, oh, yeah, yeah, I know that, yeah, we are, and you get to the end. No, no, but it's not really, is it? Yeah. You know, you're not winning the race. It's like MotoGP, where I see MotoGP is now being cancelled in Qatar, because coronavirus, people say, oh, yeah, yeah, we're, we're in the motorbikes, we're, we're going as fast as we can, but are you winning? Yeah. Are you winning, going back to the, the marginal gains? So I've emphasised the one about growth. We've emphasised the emotive nature of it. I think the other thing, which is that, in a way, boarding is an art, and like all arts, there's a lot in it. Yeah. I mean, there is a, a lot of content in here on stuff that sounds relatively straightforward. Just take a random example. Sometimes 
non-executives, experienced non-executives say they represent shareholders. Yeah. Or there's a second saying, can NEDs really represent shareholders? Yeah. How can they represent people they've never met? Yeah. So there you've got a cross between the sort of paternalism, the old-fashioned paternalism, we know best. Yeah. Even a Twitter poll uh, as to whether you want Dan's new business to go into Bolivia or not. So, you know, there's a lot of sort of radicalism hidden away there. And then in terms of people I'm not selling the book to, but Brian Basham kindly wrote the forward. He's been a 45-year-plus boarder, businessman. He created the Board Street Group. He borrowed 50 quid in the 70s. Yeah. And he floated it on the stock exchange and he was in the Sunday Times rich list for quite a long while. And uh, he's well into his 70s now. He's involved in a lot of small companies. He chaired Arch over actually going back to the the fintech world as well, long as many other sectors. And he says to me that, you know, a lot of this is very relevant to to big co-boards. They're listed boards. And for listeners who haven't really made the point, the big difference about being a listed board is that when you're a small co-board, you can pretty much do what you want. Mm -hmm. The legals aren't that challenging. When you become a big co-board, you have Cadbury and all the 24 reports afterwards, which is statist box ticking. Nevertheless, it's very relevant to those. And, uh, but the corporate governance, dreaded phrase, is starting to leak into, in the UK last year, it leaked into small co. So a big small co, and it'll laugh this one, big is defined in three different ways, depending on which part of the, the bloody thing. You have to follow the weights code now, which is more sort of status do So at the super big picture, one of the things I'm pointing to here in the, in the context and beyond is that the company per se is losing its way very badly. The company has been the engine of growth of the economy. Yep. When England invented the company in the 16th century, in the way that we came to know it as it evolved, 1600, um, Britain was 2% of world GDP. Yep. Absolute irrelevance, only grew wool. Yep. When my parents were born, we still ruled a quarter of the world. And contrary to all the narratives you hear, a bit like what did the Romans give us? Well, the Romans gave us quite a lot. Mm. Britain contributed a lot to the world. Britain contributed the model of the company as it exists. So understanding about the company is really important. And the company has kind of gone off the rails. So I keep saying that the board is part of society, the company is part of the society. So the first early companies, they were part of society. They were managed in the most democratic fashion. Everybody had one vote, all shareholders had one vote. Women had the vote on company boards centuries before they had the vote Hmm. in the state. So original company boards were democratic. Now what we have on big co-boards is colonialism. Big co-footsies around the world are ruled by governors, um, so-called independent NEDs, who fly in and out every quarter. Independent means they're supposed to know nothing about it, have no, no connection to it. So it's literally, in five centuries, we've gone from a democratic way of managing small parts of society to a colonial way yes. of managing. That's just the governance. In terms of how companies themselves are perceived, companies grow out of guilds. Guilds were societies. They'd have festival days, they'd have feast days, they'd have saints, they'd have marches, they'd have processions. Yeah. All this stuff, the Lord Mayor's, and we was on the show last time, talking about the city and the Lord Mayor's procession, that was a guild-like thing that, yeah. that grew up and the tradition carry, carries on. So you start with that, and you start with people being in very religious cultures, where there's an idea that if you do right, you go to heaven, if you do bad, you go to hell. Forget whether that's right or wrong, that's what was in their mind. Fast forward now, and we have this kind of neoliberal world. Mm where culture has been stripped away completely. You only ever get multiculture emphasised. Multiculture in the business context, i.e. globalisation, globalism, actually means no culture. And some from the 80s onwards, we've seen companies increasingly feel and act as if the only thing they need to do is make a profit. Yeah. So, drunk companies make a profit. 
by selling SSRIs, which have some very bad side effects, and which, once they, release, once they were forced to release all the trials, for most people, do not produce a benefit. Yeah. Coca-Cola goes around the world selling sugar, making people obese, giving them diabetes, which is a terrible, terrible disease, which is yeah. epidemic levels. Banks, as Brian writes about in the forward, have been driven, driving some people to suicide just to make more money. Newspapers create division, fear and anger just to make more money. So I profoundly think that the company has completely gone off the rails. On the one hand, you've got this extreme neoliberalism, which is the only thing that matters is profit. That might be OK on Ferengi now for Ferengi, yeah. But in our society, it's actually screwing up human beings around the world. On the other hand, you've then got an attempt via these corporate governance codes mm. to codify being good to the world, ESG and all this kind of stuff, which yeah. turns into, inevitably turns to box ticking. And then you've also got the more recently the Church of the Woke and all that kind of stuff, which is that companies that go around the world, I won't mention any names, and avoid tax completely, for yeah. example and create terrible things, you know, child labour in China, yeah. they say, oh yeah, we're for you know, transgender rights, and we're this and we're that. So they spray on this sort of sheen of wokeness to make them look good. So I think there's profoundly a problem for the 21st century about where the company has, um, has come to and where it's going. But anyway, that is all by the by. One of the great things that I like about small co's is that to a man and to a woman, they are trying to do some good in the world. Yes. Yeah. In a tiny, tiny way, you come to work and you try and help people with careers. Yeah. And a good day, you helped somebody. Same with the podcast. Yeah. You know, it's interesting for me. It's fun. I wouldn't do it otherwise. But what I actually want is actually I want some listeners to listen to it and on the odd episode go, "Oh, I enjoyed that." This and or I learned something useful. So yes, it's the in the small co world there isn't this division between neoliberal profit is everything. Yeah. And, you know, your life and, and society. OK, well, look, I think we'll wrap up there, Mike. I think it's an excellent book. I think it's excellent as a handbook for founders and other people on boards. But it's also excellent for taking that macro view and thinking about what we want companies to achieve in the world and how best we can assist them to achieve that. So I'd recommend it to everyone. And um, I wish you every success with the book, Mike. Thank you, Tom. Maybe after today, when you're on a podcast in 20 years' time, someone will say, tell me about your career. You say, yeah, and then this geezer wrote a book. And actually, I sat in this seat, and it was so fantastic. I then devoted the rest of my life, and I became the most successful podcaster in the world. Who knows? Anything could happen. Thanks for listening. If you have any challenges or needs with your unlisted company board, get in touch with me at mike at londonfintechpodcast.com. Sitting in a bender all day Watching the firelight dance Watching the firelight dance We could walk in the mountains before dawn Watching a happy moon ride Watching a happy moon ride
the mountains and the trees Can you see what I mean? Can you see what I mean? We fade in between the earth and the sky Kiss the city goodbye Wave the city goodbye Wave the city goodbye Watch the firelight dance with me. 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 Watch the firelight.